Hi, in this episode of IB Matters, Kurt Carlson talks to author, speaker, and workshop leader Julie Stern, who is widely known for her work in conceptual teaching and learning. Julie has had a strong influence on IB teachers across the globe through her numerous appearances at workshops and conferences. She is also a keynote at the Minnesota IB Summer Conference in mid-August. Their conversation is loaded with examples of students gaining greater understanding of big concepts as well as students able to transfer their learning at an early age. Third graders connecting culture and economics? It happens. Welcome to IB Matters, a podcast for those who currently teach, lead, attend, or are interested in international baccalaureate IB schools. Hello, my name is Kirk Carlson, and welcome to IB Matters. Today we have the pleasure of talking with Julie Stern, who is a co-author of Tools for Teaching Conceptual Understanding, uh, which is a secondary version, and there is also a primary version for the younger grades as well. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. One of the reasons we wanted to talk with Julie today, uh, not only to hear more about her uh, book and conceptual understanding uh, and teaching framework that she's going to tell us more about, but also on August 13th and 14th, uh, the Minnesota IB Association will have its summer conference here in Minnesota at uh, St. Paul at Bethel University, and she will be our keynote speaker on August 14th and then uh, be leading a session after that about conceptual-based teaching and learning and focusing on her book. Uh, might I add also, she currently also has the highest registration uh, for the conference uh, as far as people signing up for it. And if you're interested in signing up, if you go to www.mnibschools.org, you'll see our registration information on our uh, homepage of our website. All right, Julie, could you give us a little bit of background information about your current role and a little bit about uh, how you got into the work that you do? Yes, definitely, sure. Um, so I was a, a specialist for Lynn Erickson's institutes, her summer institutes, um, for a few years, and that was an amazing experience. And I think what Lynn Erickson brings to the field, um, several things, but to me the biggest aha moment was um, two concepts stated in relationship. And so previous, I was director of curriculum when I first went to, and when I first came across her work, and I, we were using understanding by design, which is amazing. The notion of enduring understandings, the things that we want kids to remember way beyond our, our classroom, um, had, had been seeped into to the school where I was working. But um, Erickson sort of provided almost this formula, two, con- two or more concepts stated in relationship with a strong verb in a complete sentence is, is almost how you write those enduring understandings. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how I came into to the work. And as uh, Lynn Erickson's, one of her, she was, as she, you know, she, she's in, into retirement now and, and doing her summer institute one time a year. Um, she just kept saying, listen, assessment and instruction is for the younger folks. Um, that's for you, Julie. You know, she said to me one day over dinner. And so it really inspired me to, to write um, about going more deeply beyond the unit plan, but into the classroom. What is the day-to-day um, interaction with students look like? 
And so that's that's how the book came about. Having used the MYP unit planner myself and having made several choices of which concepts to use, uh, my big aha moment was when I read your book uh, and you described the part about how to establish a culture of deep learning. Could you describe for us how you begin a conversation with IB teachers about concept-based teaching and learning? Yeah, sure. I work a lot with with IB schools, and I think um, the first the first key point that I try to make in that sort of is a light bulb moment for people is that we can't take for granted that the students know what the concepts are. And uh, one thing that I try to do is introduce concept attainment or an inductive approach to understanding a concept. And so let me give you a quick example for a, a classic lesson plan that I actually have available on my website, edtosavetheworld.com, um, is water crisis on the Nile. And so if I want kids to understand um, scarcity, scarcity of resources, I wouldn't u- first introduce that word. I would show them a bunch of images. And so a favorite thing that I tell teachers is whatever your concept is, go into Google Images and put in the, put in the word and search the images and use those images. And then it's amazing for students uh, who might not be native English speakers as well to use images um, or for even students with learning differences to say, what's in co- what, are, what do these images have in common? And to really get kids to look at the critical attributes that make a concept a concept. Even pattern or some of these big um, key concepts that you don't think of as something in images. They're so abstract. But that's sort of one of the main things is make sure students deeply understand the critical attributes of single concepts by themselves and make them come to life in your classroom. And an example, another example I'll share with that um, is I had a teacher uh, the other day tell me, actually it was a a curriculum specialist who works with teachers, that they asked students, um, which words from this passage are difficult for you? And 25% of the students said the word immigration. This is ninth graders, was difficult for them. The teacher was floored because he had taught a whole unit on immigration. And so to me, that says they, we were taken for granted that kids knew what that word was. And we sort of, we sort of plowed along thinking, yeah, clearly you guys know what immigration is. And so I think in all subjects, mathematics, all subjects, all grade levels, we often take for granted that kids know what this concept is. Um, so that's sort of the first step that I think is important in, in, in the classroom, making sure those come to life. And then of course, the second step is putting those concepts in relationship. What is the relationship between scarce resources and immigration? There's where you get those big ideas and conceptual understanding coming together, those enduring understandings. When kids start to say scarce resources leads to immigration, for example. Um, and so our scarce resources leads to conflict, which then leads to immigration. You know, you can go so many different ways once you start putting those concepts together. So don't take for granted the concepts by themselves. And then once they have a deep understanding of them, start connecting them is, is one of my, is my two major key points before I start talking about assessments. <laughs> well, speaking of assessments, uh, one of the things uh, I discovered early on when I got more experience with uh, making a written curriculum using, assess- or using uh, concepts was that it certainly then led to a change in how I was going to be teaching. Uh, 
thus changing the way I assess students and my entire assessment design needed to change because I certainly quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to use my my old assessments that had some true false, some multiple choice, and maybe a couple little short answers. Uh, my assessment design definitely needed to change to better align with the concepts that I was uh, asking students to engage with. Right, exactly. And teachers have been really creative with it. And one recently said to me that they've asked their, their students to do it. So, you know, get the students to say, Google, you know, Google Images Immigration, and then you pick the image that most speaks to your definition of immigration. And amazing conversations come of that. Well, one thing I'm definitely doing as you're talking here, Julie, is taking notes on all these great ideas. <laughs> great. Well, one of the things I've certainly come to realize is that when I went to the university uh, to learn how to become a teacher, uh, I was not taught uh, how to use concepts to frame curriculum and use them to deliver the uh, information that I was wanting to get to students. Could you tell us how using concepts is different from what many teachers have done in the past? That's a great question. I'm, I think in a nutshell, we know that cognitive science is everything that I read is now pointing in this direction that cognitive science since, since the early 1900s have been virtually saying the same thing. And we see it over and over again, that experts organize information in their brain that they use, you know, what John Hattie calls concepts are, are coat hangers. Um, I prefer the, the analogy of file holders. So, you know, concepts organize information in our brain and experts have this sort of mental models or schema where they're connecting all of these concepts. An expert in social studies knows that scarce resources is going to lead to migration. Um, they know that automatically. And so they see a situation in such as the water crisis on the Nile, and they know the more people start to live and depend on this water, this fresh water, and the more it becomes scarce, the more conflicts going to arise, the more immigration is, is going to be an issue in that region. Um, and so experts organize information in their brain. So the shift moves from, I need you to know a whole bunch of facts about the world, about geography, to keep with this same example. Um, I need you to know, memorize all, this, all the capitals of, of the continent of, of Africa, all the, all the countries and all the capitals. Instead of memorizing for the sake of memorizing, those facts are still important, but they're important in the context of these organizing ideas, which are concepts. And so it's not like it's trying to do something dramatically different. What we're trying to do is, is help kids learn in the best way that the brain learns. You know, one of the things that I've certainly noticed uh, when working with students uh, regarding concepts is students come to school with a lot of preconceived notions of how school has been uh, delivered to them uh, in the past. And what I've certainly noticed in students, my eighth grade design students, for example, uh, is that when when we're using concepts to organize the content in which we want them to understand, uh, they really catch on quickly. Uh, and, you know, when I think of who in the school uh, is struggling with any of these types of pedagogical changes, such as using concepts to deliver a curriculum, uh, it's usually the adults that are kind of struggling a little bit more, not only to understand it, but how to 
do the planning of it, how to design the assessments uh, that that they're delivering to their students. Um, so I've I've certainly come to believe that um, if teachers or schools are kind of concerned about these types of changes, uh, they don't really need to be that concerned about the students because I think you'll find that the students are the ones that most quickly adapt and catch on. Like like you had mentioned, you know, this is naturally how our brain works. Yeah, it may not be naturally how school has been done uh, for students, but when when concepts are being used in the written curriculum and the teaching is using that written curriculum to deliver the information in any subject area, I think this is really where where students make natural connections, and it's really often difficult to get them to stop talking about uh, the things that they're learning because they're making so many new connections and they're really getting it. Generally, I would say it's the adults that struggle with uh, this type of change more so than the students. Yes, that's a really great point. I'm going to start using that in my workshops. Is guess what? The kids, the kids will adapt faster than we will, and I, I, I appreciate that. Um, and that's why Chapter 2 of both books. So Chapter 1 is sort of a review of Lynn Erickson's work in unit, in unit planning. Um, and I'm soon to be, it's not going to be out until January of 2021, but I'm re- working on my own version of that book right now. Um, and then, and it was basically curriculum design for the 21st century. And then chapter two of both books is about building thinking classrooms, because if we, we skip that step, then, oh, what an uphill battle will be. So, you know, chapter two has a lot of strategies of how to do that. And I just want to reference for those who have a copy, page 35 in the secondary and page 54 in the in the elementary versions have these cartoons. And that's a former student of mine who drew those. So I just like to throw that out there. Jimmy Condi was a former student of mine. And he he I just said, hey, Jimmy, look, I want to contrast traditional learning with conceptual learning. And I said, this is kind of the the vision that we have. My co-author, Christopher Ferraro, is the one who came up with it. But he drew this. And if you look at the traditional, and I'm changing this to, um, I'm changing the image to industrial-based learning, because traditional, when I work with indigenous populations, they often think traditional means our ways, and that's not what I mean. Um, I mean industrial model. So an industrial model of learning, he drew the kid with a, a frown. Uh, it's a kid collecting pebbles on the beach. And so as an analogy to collecting facts in a jar, and you, many people may have seen the video on my YouTube channel, which uses these same images to sort of illustrate my key points. It's a three-minute video on my YouTube, Julie Stern YouTube channel um, of a kid collecting facts in a jar versus a kid with a rough mound of rock who's making a sculpture. And, you know, really that, that – and we, so I always use this in my workshops. I, you know, I have teachers, and what teachers always say is, I went through the top, the industrial model of schooling, and I need to figure out how to teach kids more like the, the, the bottom, the conceptual approach to learning. Um, and so all of those in chapter two are, and there's, they're not exhaustive. I mean, there's so many ways we could build thinking classrooms. Um, what I, why I tried to include some, some specific strategies in there is because um, what I've seen is that when a whole school, so for example, your kids probably rotate from class to class to class. So if if you know three, two, three teachers in the grade level start to use some of these strategies, then the kids start using it with automatically, and they'll start saying, you know, when, and sometimes I'll work with a school, a cohort of teachers who volunteer to work with me, and so the kids will say, I'll interview them, and they'll say, I know which teachers are working with you, I can see it in the classroom, 
and they'll go from classroom to classroom and the kids will be all mixed up and the teacher notices which students have the same science teacher because they know how to do the strategy already and they start telling their, their, their partners, oh, this is how you do it. You, you don't have Miss So-and-so for, for science, so let me show you how to do this. Um, and that's, like you said, about the kids adapting so fast and that's what gets the momentum going is when teachers start to see, wow, these kids are talking about their learning. I can't get them to stop talking in the group work and the peer work. Um, that's when the other teachers say, maybe I'll start coming to your optional workshops. <laughs> I know, at least with my own assessments, I've tried to have uh, an element of transfer uh, in my assessments from, let's say, familiar situations that we may have uh, been practicing in class to an unfamiliar situation on, let's say, a summative assessment that students um, haven't been given before. Yes. So that's that's huge. And how I started uh, really on this journey towards uh, focusing on the transfer piece of learning, is that, that's that been an evolution. It's sort of, at, on one hand, I, I read Susan Brookhart, who's kind of my go-to, one of my go-tos on, on assessment. And it, she, she has this great little book called How to Assess Higher Order Thinking in Your Classroom. And she says, if we're thinking about uh, Bloom's taxonomy, the revised Bloom's taxonomy with, with no, remember at the bottom, if we use the same scenario or situation that we've been teaching in class, we cannot be sure that the kids are actually doing application analysis evaluation because they could be remembering my analysis as the teacher. So that was just a, a, a watershed moment for me in my career. I said, you know what, that, that makes perfect sense. If I'm teaching World War II and I ask the kids what I think is an analysis level question on the exam, I can't be sure that they're actually analyzing. They might just be remembering and repeating my analysis. So that was a big moment. At the same time, simultaneously, I'm looking at, at the world. I'm looking at climate change becoming an issue. I'm looking at um, a number of issues on the rise and the fact that these, this generation of kids is gonna have to solve problems that we currently don't know how to solve. And so transfer is key. We, we cannot keep teaching kids what we already know. We have to be preparing them to solve problems that we can't solve. And so those two things, forces sort of combining, along with this work in conceptual understanding, has made me realize the, the value in actually having kids transfer their learning, not only on the assessment, but in class, multiple times. Don't make the mistake I made, which is asking kids to transfer on an assessment, and I never asked them to transfer in class. And so what I came to see is that transfer is both a means and an end. Transfer deepens their learning and gets them used to really focusing on these, 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 these relationships between concepts. And so I'll give you an example from a teacher that I work with actually in Manila. Um, this is a, a sixth grade science teacher, and he, he wanted them to understand, his students to understand kinetic energy, force, and motion. And so in class, you know, he, did, he brought in different things. So he brought in a pendulum. And he, he had the students transfer in these examples the relationship between kinetic en energy, force, and motion. And um, by the time they came to the assessment, they had transferred three different in three different contexts. So he had a roller coaster on the assessment. And he for his, his graduate school, he interviewed every single kid as part of his master's degree and asked them this question. Do you think it was fair that I presented a new situation on your assessment for a grade. 
And this is in Asia, so let's keep that that context in mind. And 100% of the kids said, yes, of course it was fair. That's the only way we would show our understanding, our true understanding. That's what the kids said. And so it's, it's amazing once we start presenting new situations where those concepts are present and asking kids to, sh- to tell us how those concepts are present and how they're playing out in relationship in these new situations, um, they start to see the point and they start to come in and say, hey, English teachers tell me all the time that kids come into class saying, I was trying to watch a movie this weekend and I kept thinking about this novel you're making me read. Or, you know, I'm, I, me and my friend stayed up text messaging the relationship between the French Revolution, which I'm studying in social studies class, and Lord of the Flies, which I'm reading in your class. And I mean, it's just incredible when we start doing this, kids start to see how the world is organized. It's almost like the secret matrix. The world is organized in concepts and concepts stated in relationship. And when we sort of expose that to kids, they can't stop. They can't stop seeing the connections. And it's super, super cool. Yeah, I think that's a great example of uh, the movie The Matrix. Um, I, I really feel that when teachers get comfortable planning instruction, uh, using concepts, uh, that what they're really doing for students is opening up a whole new way of thinking for students uh, to better understand the, the world around themselves. Yeah, it's amazing. Last night I had a call with a school that, district that I'm working with. I do a lot of virtual work, um, and and they the t- principal put the third grade on the spot, and they said, third grade teachers, uh, you've done the most uh, sort of work in this. Share with us what it, your greatest success is. And they said, look, today we started a new unit on the economy. And our last unit was on culture. We just opened up the unit. We were just talking about what the economy means, what it, what it is and what it means. And the students started bringing in different ideas from their last unit on culture. The teacher said they had not really even thought about the connections between culture and the economy. They were sort of like, here's our new unit. But the students Third graders were bringing up the connections and, and making connections that the teachers hadn't even thought of themselves between culture and the economy. And that's just like, wow. I mean, especially when young, young kids start doing it is, is really when, when teachers start to say, okay, okay, I think, I think there's something real here. Yeah, that, that has certainly been my experience as well. Well, Julie, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you about uh, the whole topic of concept-based teaching and learning uh, and how it's connected to our written curriculum and you know, eventually assessments. Uh, is there any last thoughts that you would like to share with us today? Uh, I just I can't wait to be there. My One of my best friends is from Minnesota, and I've never been. So this is going to be a real treat for me, and I can't wait to see you guys. Thanks for having me, and um, looking forward to it. You can learn much more about Julie Stern's work in conceptual teaching and learning using links in our podcast notes. There you will find Julie's books, her website, and her YouTube channel. Please find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe so you don't miss any future programs. Follow us on Twitter at MattersIB. Also, help us spread the word about IB by liking and sharing the IB Matters links in your own feeds and social networks. In very little time, we have already been heard in over 40 countries, a true testament to the global reach of the IB. Matters.